The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. 20 years ago, a bunch of young comedians and their manager who'd spent years making comedy nights happen across Auckland, thought it was time for a dedicated venue. On Queen Street, near the town hall, they found a spot that was a lot perfect and a bit yuck. The classic was infamous as an adult cinema. Over 20 years of building the business and the state of comedy in New Zealand, one founder, Scott Blanks, went from organising comedy nights through to being the owner, mentor, fosterer and friend to comedians young and old, new and established. He turned his background in first accounting and then cinema marketing into a role often called the godfather of stand-up, creating careers and also recognition for the craft. And not just with the live shows, but through telly too. Before there was a seven days, there was pulp comedy. Scott was part of that. And before that, funny business. Yep, Scott too. And how it's all grown. His club puts on 350 plus gigs a year for tens of thousands through the door, with space on stage for those just starting out, right through to some of the biggest names in world comedy. To chat the first 20 years, the explosion in comedy, he helped spark, and what's next? Scott Blanks of the Classic Comedy Club joins us now. G'day, thanks for coming along. Simon, how are you? Uh, very good, good to see you. Um, what got you, let, let's go right back to yeah. the, the start of um, the, the career there in comedy. What, what attracted you to comedy from uh, a background of accounting and cinema marketing? Well, probably my interest in comedy precedes the actual accounting and stuff because it goes back to when I was uh, a young sort of 10, 11 year old um, and you know, buying my first records. My elder brother was buying Led Zeppelin, um, early Bowie. Uh, I was buying Fred Dagg's Greatest Hits ah, and cool. Monty Python Live at Drury Lane. Uh, and I had ended up having, I think, five or six Monty Python albums. I lis- listened to The Goon Show on the radio. So um, my tastes were not quite the, the normal tastes of, <laughs> of a young teenager. Um, I did love the music as well, but I had room for the comedy. So that carried on from that. Um, of course, no one ever spots a career in comedy. Back then, you're looking at lawyer, teacher, accountant. Uh, doctor. Uh, so I followed a traditional line. I'm studying for accountancy. Uh, I did all that um, until I uh, discovered amateur theatre. 
uh, after I left school and I started getting into amateur theatre and musicals and I could realise straight away that my heart was in that place, not in the world of high finance and accountancy. So I, um, after having worked for three years, I gave away the accountancy, went back full time, fooled myself that I was going to complete my accounting degree by going back full time and immediately created space to play, which I did. I started uh, my own little promo business, Scott Free Promotions, um, and hired myself out and my theatre friends creating publicity stunts. And one of my clients was a cinema company, Kira Jodian. They hired me to create stunts to promote films and then to stage movie premieres and things like that. Well, the guy that hired me quit, and they hired me in his place, and I spent 10 years with Kira Jodian. But that was only, again, a cover. <laughs> so, so always very entrepreneurial to be pulling together uh, people with uh, kind of um, who are willing to go and do the fun stunts for you as you pull yeah. the strings. Entrepreneurial, yeah, just wanting to – the entertainment industry was something that appealed to me enormously. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the movie industry was – much more of an institution than, than the comedy industry at that stage. So it was good. And then I started moonlighting um, because I, I, I met a bunch of comedians in a place called Retro Nightclub in the city here. And people going way back will remember, remember Retro. Um, it held a comedy night on a Wednesday, you know, when they're looking for some way of filling the club on an off night. And they had a series of comedy nights. Willie DeWitt won that competition and went off to do a stint at the comedy store. But following the competition, I knitted together five of the people that competed, Dean Butler, Willie DeWitt, uh, Peter Murphy, Ian Harcourt, Chris Hegan. We stitched that together. We called it Funny Business, and we started doing live comedy at the Windsor Castle in Parnell every second Wednesday. Uh, and that went on for a number of years. We toured. We did orientations. We were the only contemporary comedy group in the country. There were, were a lot of old-school comedians who sort of looked at us and went, oh, who are these young bucks? Oh, they're a bit rude. Mm -hmm. And we were. I mean, Dean Butler was way, way out there with some of his material. Um, and so we, uh, we just started building from there. And was that more of a traditional, um, or what we'd look at now as traditional stand-up, as opposed to, I mean, you did have your, um, like Fred Dagg, who you mentioned, who that album that you said you bought, that, um, that uh, John Barnett put out, that was one of the biggest sellers in New Zealand ever. And, yeah. you know, Billy G. James was a national treasure. Yeah. But they were kind of... Um, TV comedians, weren't they, rather than stand-up as we'd recognise it? Yeah, we actually, we weren't even stand-ups then. We st I started out thinking of more of Monty Python. So the group was much more sketch-based. Uh, the problem when you're doing live sketch is that you have these yawning big gaps between sketches um, that you go, what are we going to do there? We have to go and change costumes. And, and the simple solution was we said, well, you know, overseas they have those stand-up comedians. Each of you has to come up with a... a um, an alternative, so alter ego, and each of them did come up with a solo stand-up act that was an alter ego. I didn't really keep up with them, and then Willie and Dean contacted me and said, look, we've hooked up with these other guys who have moved to um, Auckland. And it was a comedy group called Facial DBX, who'd come out of Massey University, and there were four or five of them, plus the Corbett brothers, Jeremy and Nigel, plus Alan Bro plus Kevin Smith, the actor. Mm -hmm. um, and so Willie and Dean approached me and said, look, these guys have started doing these comedy nights at Kitty O'Brien's once every six weeks. And I went, well, why once every six weeks? Oh, because they have to write a new show <laughs> each time. And I went, why? Why don't you perform the same show every week? And yeah. it was like, uh, so they invited me into this group going, look, we hear what you're saying. 
how do we go about this once a week scenario? Where are we going to find a fresh audience every week? And that was my job. I was fillet man. I had to fill the room with people because, and promote the shows for them. And that was the beginning of a group called Comedy Fest, which was a loose-knit group of 11 or 12 uh, people who all were – the other 11 or 12 were wanting to be comedians, and I was the non-performing member. And, and incredibly talent rich. You, you, you mentioned quickly there the Corbett brothers and people like Kevin John Smith. Bridges. John, John Bridges yeah, as yeah. well, you know, um, and, and, and Willie DeWitt, like huge talent. And with a lot of experience by that stage. So we, um, it, they, they'd all done shows, they'd all toured shows around. So we started out doing the stand up thing, and, uh, and we really were pushing the now you stand and deliver just one person at the microphone, none of the sketch business, mm-hmm. the, no songs. no. So it was a different kettle of fish for a lot of them, uh, but it built, and that was every Thursday at Kitty O'Brien's. It soon became every Wednesday, Thursday. We then tacked on the Masonic in Devonport every Saturday, and for five years we were doing, we'd been going, and we were doing three or four nights a week around Auckland at different venues. And actually carving it out as a, as a thing, uh, just person by person, gig by gig. At the same time, what was happening internationally? Because the thing that you ended up launching with the Classic Comedy Club is a great stand-up club in the tradition of the, the big American clubs. Yeah, we, well, when we started, the New Zealand Comedy Festival started at the same time, and it was looking for international guests. And we thought, well, we sort of know what we're doing. So it wasn't a difficult thing to, to travel to... Uh, foreign markets, particularly the Edinburgh Fringe, mm. where there's a great source of com- comedy. So a couple of us would go up to the Edinburgh Fringe and sort of make our presence felt, go and see shows. It soon became known that we were sort of scouting, which of course is a, a, a very valuable thing for an international comedian to have scouts in their show. Yep. So we were scouting, but we weren't scouting for the household names. We couldn't afford them. Mm. We started scouting for what we could spot as the next big thing. Uh, and for instance, a very one, a very good example of that, Simon Pegg, mm. now international actor uh, and a success. He came here with barely a sixty-minute show to his name, and we put him on at Kitty O'Brien's, and he had the time of his life. And what uh, kind of level of professionalism? Was that like ooh. come and stay on our couch, or yeah. was it we're going to put you up in the Sheridan? We tried to. Well, hospitality was very important to us. We knew we weren't paying the big bucks, um, so we thought. We can't pay them maybe what they earn in the UK, but we can show them a good time, as only a Kiwi could. So we, uh, we often found them good accommodation, in which we tended to contra somehow. Um, uh, they were well taken care of. They were showing around. There was always a trip to Kerry Kerry or Bethel's. There was always a, a trip to, say, Waitomo Caves, um, sometimes a bit of a fishing competition on the harbour. Uh, sort of off-stage stuff, which is the stuff they remembered the most, because often when they went to other festivals, they'd just be abandoned. They'd be p- picked up at the airport, shoved in accommodation, told where to turn up at 8 o'clock each night, and then it was up to them what happened next. Whereas we were quite hands-on, and we and they were quite surprised at the level of media interest in their in their very um, fledgling careers. They, they would come here and go, oh, what, all these media want to talk to us? And, and we go, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of care element is something that um, comes through again and again uh, in talking to and reading about you know the involvement that you've had in people's careers because you often hear about um the loneliness of stand-up comedy and the touring especially in big markets like the states or europe where people are doing many venues over many nights in many different places and it's hotel rooms and 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 quite uh, detached How well about- I, I think when you're in business like that and um you know a little bit of hospitality goes a long way um 
you, you learn very quickly, for instance, like our, our parties that we used to hold on the Saturday night after the shows had finished became legendary. Mm. And people would talk about them around the world um, and go, you know, you've got to go to the classic. Oh, forget about the audiences. Forget about the shows. Go for the parties. And you go, what an easy way of selling a trip to New Zealand mm. when we're not having to worry about uh, what they're getting paid as much as wh- how, what they're doing while they're here, how much fun they're having. And you forget what, how important that is sometimes in business. Um, it, as soon as it is all business, it's not much fun. Mm. And we've always insisted that we have fun. Tell me how you started. So how was it that you guys went from um, building the local scene into setting up the the classic? Well, the guys involved, um, after about five years, some of them were starting to get distracted by real careers. Like they had gone to university, they'd got degrees. They realized that gigging for a hundred bucks a night was not going to pay the mortgage or feed their families. Especially if they stayed out drinking for five hours afterwards. And, and some, yeah, well, some of them had families. Some of them <laughs> got married and we're going, well, we, you know, we've got to raise the game. And we, as, as we'd traveled, we'd course gone to Edinburgh, we'd gone to comedy clubs around the world. We'd seen how these places operate and we'd seen the sort of business that was involved and gone, I think we need to raise the bar. We all agreed we had to raise the bar. And the best thing to, to do was to open our own venue. We also noticed that when we were filling venues that half the revenue on the night was going over the bar. We were only taking the door. Um, uh, probably if we had negotiated harder, we could have had a piece of that action. But no, we, we realized that maybe we needed to open our own venue. And then it became a bit of a search. Everyone was sort of wandering around the city, walking in and out of buildings, uh, trying to imagine where we could build a comedy club. And I went back to my cinema days and I said, well, I know a place up Queen Street uh, that uh, is an adult cinema, um, but is an amazing space. And not just that, it's, there's four levels. There's lots of other amazing spaces in the building. And we did a bit of investigation and we realized it was a city council property and that the person who was s- sort of leasing it was, was paying a peppercorn rent. Mm. And we, so we approached the council and said, look, you've got a porn cinema as one of your um, tenants. How about we take over that building and raise the moral bar and put a comedy club in there? <laughs> one of the only, only times that comedians have been able to do that, I'll be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're a step up. And what, what was it like? Was it, because um, it even just like, it, it sounds pretty mank. Um, what it was, it was like very mank. <laughs> One does not spend a lot of money on uh, maintaining a porn cinema. Um, so we had to, the legendary stories of, um, yeah, taking up the carpet in the main room. Um, interesting. We tried with, to roll it up. but with it, gloves? Well, we did. Have, we had gloves and we had all had masks and gloves on. Not just because of the building was so old. Yeah. God knows what was existing in that building. But we did try and um, roll the carpet up, but it snapped. Um, <laughs> and uh, we uh, and we did have to scrape down some surfaces, and oh, um, yeah. and then there was, there was quite a quite a bit of renovation went on. Yeah, um, and, and so you had a bit of uh, kind of um, I, I suppose some cultural hit, uh, tailwinds c- coming to help you kind of get started. But what what was it like undercapitalized, everyone in together uh, to actually build? an audience for a club, uh, pay the rent every week. Well, the good thing is we had been doing comedy three or four nights a week elsewhere. So we dragged all that business into Kitty O'Brien, into, sorry, the classic and closed down the other gigs like Kitty O'Brien. So that focused our business there. Uh, We did notice very quickly that we really had raised the bar. Um, We had some successes. We had great successes during the comedy festival. And then we had these massive slow patches um, and we got to the end of three years and went, 
uh, there were still bills to pay from opening the club, three-year-old bills. Um, there was a debt to the IRD. The usual things that happen in the first three years of business where we tried to comply with everything you have to comply with, but we were short. And uh, maybe... We also looked around and said maybe too many chiefs and um, we had plenty of Indians, but just too many of us trying to make a go of it. And, and really by the stage, there were others had mortgages, families and, and commitments. And they said, look, we can't be taking these risks. You know, we're now feeling exposed as shareholders, as directors. Um, I was probably the, the, the loosest one. And I just went, look, well, I haven't got a family. I've got no commitments. I've got bugger all money. Um, but... I'm prepared to run with this. So at the end of three years, we had to do the good old voluntary liquidation. Mm. And, the, and the shareholders, including myself, had to give up our shares and our shareholding. And we restructured um, with the uh, consent of, of various people and a lot of support from banks and the city council who um, helped us through that period. And so we restructured. And this is, that was after three years. So we're now 17 years later, and it's now going strong. Yeah. Did, did you ever think you were going to lose it when yeah. the oh, bills God. were there? We thought we were going to lose it then and there. I mean, I, I was, it was Christmas time, and um, I remember being at home on my own late at night, you two on the, on, the, on the stereo, very loud. I think I had a bottle of whiskey, and I was... It's about the only time I've ever really done that, and I was ranting and raving around the house, sort of banging my head against the wall thinking, what can we do, what can we do, you know? we've got to fight back here there's got to be something we can do yeah did people tell you you were crazy to be starting a yeah comment to be to be leaving um because yep. being a looking after marketing for a, a, a movie company they were you know hugely influential glamorous job and chucking it all in to to open a comedy club and a porn cinema yeah but there's nothing like the power of doing it yourself doing your own having your own business you know if i could have made my own movies or whatever and and exhibited my own movies or whatever i probably you know i would have done that but i wasn't that way inclined i um it's, it's a very powerful thing being in business for yourself being on the edge going well it's only up to me and the others that are involved um and it's that's a good space to be you've it's yin and yang though with, with the power that comes from that is the um the risk, uh, but it's great to be there, you know, to be on that edge and fighting those battles, you know, where's the next audience coming from and really looking at hard at what's making New Zealand laugh, how can we appeal to our audiences more and how to find comedians, that's probably the most exciting part of my job is that I can't, this, my club can't survive, the industry can't grow without new talent and so we have spent 20 to 25 years constantly looking for new talent. Let's look at some of the ways that you do that, because with the raw uh, talent um, comedy nights, you're bringing in new comedians. You also do classes and go go and go out and do outreach. Is that right? Yeah, the um, the New Zealand Comedy Festival Trust runs the class comedians, and that has become an invaluable source of new comedians because they go into schools around comedy festival time. They run courses, and, they, and then they select a couple of students from each school. Uh, to join a more intensive course during the festival, and they put on a show as well. And some of the people that have come out of that, Reese Mathewson, Rose Matafeo um, was a class comedian, James Roquet was a, com- a class comedian, um, uh, just recently my winner of the 2017 Raw Comedy Quest, uh, Ruby Esther, she was a class comedian. 
all of these people are going on to have careers in comedy and they came from the class comedians course we also run the raw comedy every monday which means it's open access to anyone out there and the key to getting them is by having our own winners so you know we can point to Di Henwood and Ben Hurley and all these guys who came through the original Raw Comedy. I mean, Paul Ego was a competitor in the very first Raw Comedy Quest 24 <laughs> years ago. Uh, so there you go. He, uh, there's a good example of someone who started at the beginning and where they are now. Looking at how comedy is now, what, what do you think were the big things that changed? Because it wasn't that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, that there was a big question, you know, is, is New Zealand comedy fun and, you know, is it good? And there were a couple of sketch shows on TV, but not a great, um, not a great sport. And uh, one of the favourite things in the media was saying that TVNZ missed Flight of the Concords. And there was a real feeling that there was, there was a bit of a lull about 10 years ago in, in local comedy. And now it's massive. Yeah, well, we, I think we've gone through the, those sort of little stages where we've got ahead and then the audience has caught up and then we've got ahead. 10 years ago, we were ahead. We knew we had everything we needed to. Uh, maybe the the audiences hadn't quite got there. Um, when we first opened the club, um, there was we would put on shows, and we've always just advertised the lineup. We've never really hung our hat on the names of the performers in the show, um, uh, and I think that was intentional to say, look. It's not about who's in the show. It's about the venue and about the shows. Come along and see the shows. You're coming along to a raw night, you'll see new comedians. No, you, you're not going to know any of them. Big Wednesday's fresh comedy night. You know, it's going to be pros that you know, trying out new material. We're not going to promise you who's going to be on stage. That's not what the show is about. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, yeah, we have the pros on, but four or five in each show. And we're, we're fairly, uh, we like to deal with everyone fairly even-handedly. We do have headliners in the show, but often everyone is billed equally on the show. It's not, it's not just one person and a whole lot of anonymous people. And that's important that the audiences have got confidence in coming along, say, to the comedy all-stars on a Friday night. And they might say, let's go to the classic and see the all-stars. Who's on? Doesn't matter. It's always good. That is, that is a really important factor, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone going, I'm not going to go till I know who's on, and I'm not going to go unless Di Henwood is on. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and there's no doubt when we do put a Di Henwood or a Paul Ego on the lineup, the numbers suddenly swell, the advance bookings shoot up. We often can be sold out in advance. But it's really important that the audience has got confidence in everyone they see, and that's what's changed, and that over the years, people now go, don't doubt they're coming to see comedians when we first opened they'd be ringing up going oh are they funny who are they i mean are they are they new zealanders are there any overseas people on because the overseas people are funny but the local people can't be funny there's not any woman on is there there aren't any funny because there aren't any funny women in new zealand let's look at that because it's only a few years like very short amount of time since the, the it was like a reasonable question in the media for people to say, are female comedians funny? Which yeah. is just nuts, you yeah. know? Well, Michelle Court was an absolute trailblazer. She was on board with us we, we at Kitty O'Brien's days. She is the original female stand-up comedian in New Zealand, uh, along, very, along, along with um, people at that time, Jack Tweedy, who was way ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. Jack was, whoa, she could say things that could 
put, put an audience <laughs> or shut them up very quickly. They, they, were, they were put in their place very quickly too if they heckled. Um, Emma Lang, um, uh, we had others around. Kate Ward-Smythe, who's a lovely lady who works now at Q Theatre, she also was doing stand-up. So there were some trailblazers. Yeah. They, they had to suffer a lot of brickbats because, yeah, the audiences would fold their arms when, when a female comedian came on stage. And, it, and a lot of the guys too. So you had this sort of, oh, you're New Zealanders, are you funny? Um, that perception took a long time to change. After the club opened, people went, oh, okay, we do have our own comedy club now. That says something. Um, but it took probably 10 years for us to stop getting the, but are they funny mm. line always when people would ring up and say who's on. Uh, and now we just have people coming uh, with complete faith that they're going to see um, uh, funny comedians. I mean, on Monday night, well, last Monday, we had raw comedy. Absolutely packed out. Not a seat available in the house. All paid for. Not comped or stuff. We couldn't even get our freebies in, the standby comedians um, and friends of comedians. We couldn't get them and it was packed out. That's a Monday night in Auckland for raw comedy open mic. What are the business lessons you've learned out of this? I mean, from uh, starting, building the scene, going into liquidation, having to rebuild. What, 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 kind of, uh, what are the main business lessons you've pulled out? Uh, well... I think uh, one of the first things, uh, actually very grassroots business thing, is, is the art of communication and connecting with your um, audience. You know? And comedians, of course, have to do that very quickly, as does anyone when, they're, when they've got an idea. You've got to pitch an idea to, to people who aren't on board with your idea. And an audience is not necessarily on board with a comedian in the first instance. So a comedian has to step out on stage and introduce themselves. You've got seconds to do that. Uh, and a good salesperson will also tell you that when you're dealing with a new customer, you have seconds to get it right or wrong. You know, a, a, a person will make up maybe 90% of their decision about a person in the first maybe 10 seconds of meeting them. Mm. Um, and I often say to the comedians, when you step out on stage, the moment you emerge in front of the audience, you haven't even opened your mouth. You are, you are on show. And the audience is thinking and making, making get their perception of you is is, um, is growing straight away. So you've got to say the right things. You've got to do the right things. Comedians often don't think, and I think that applies in business too. You know, I've always believed you need to start off as you mean to carry on. When we we've been we've been approached so many times by um, uh, companies like Grab One and all the discount voucher companies that have come and gone over the years coupon companies they've approached us and said what are your slow nights where are your gaps you know we could fill your off nights we could fill the nights you're not open and i've said straight away i want no perception in the marketplace that my my venue or that stand-up comedy is a discount entertainment mm -hmm. you're not going to get 50 percent off my brand or my comedy new zealand is not about discount we do quality if we wanted to we'd hire a 10,000 seat auditorium and discount 50 percent of the seats and fill it with fill it cheaply but of course pay but that's not what we're about and i i believe that's very important um i'm not a trained brand man at all but i'm precious about my brand and i love it uh, and I'm certainly not going to run it down in that way. And I think it's very important that companies, particularly those companies that are run with passion by the person that maybe thought of the idea and started it, not to be fooled into thinking that bigger is, be bigger is better. Um, people often say, oh, look, you're, you're sold out. Get a bigger venue. And I go, you know, sometimes it's better to be turning people away. Um, it creates a perception uh, of quality and also... 
it, it makes you more um, valuable yeah. when people can't buy a seat as opposed to everyone being able to buy a seat. So I like the idea of being a boutique quality. It fits the New Zealand market, I think. There are some very big players in the, in the business world, uh, in the entertainment world, very big comedians filling Vector Stadium. None of that ever affects my business anymore. Once upon a time, you know, people would say, oh, God, Billy Connolly's playing the vector. You'll be quiet tonight. And we actually might have been quiet. Not anymore. Um, that when those people come here, they just create more demand for what the classic offers. So it's important in business to hold on to your, your dream um, and don't, be, don't think that bigger is better. Um, remember that the first impressions are really count. Uh, and when people are coming in and seeing your business for the first time, we're, our staff are very much on board. We realize that our staff are the first people that the audience meets, not, not the comedians. So the staff have to be on board with our mission as well. What's the advice that you give to young people starting out? Because there's not just the comics that you've got to build the pipeline for, which you guys do a lot of, but also the enablers of comedy, the managers, the producers. Uh, what, what, what advice do you give someone, I don't know, maybe someone's listening here, a couple of years into their accounting, thinking there's a more exciting life out there for me? The first thing I, I do say to people starting is that everyone becomes a better comedian with stage time. Um, but not everyone is destined to become a great comedian. So it comes down to you know, having an idea of what you want to achieve and having the short-term goals. Um, it can be very frustrating wanting to be on seven days after two years of doing comedy and us saying, you do realise that the people on seven days, most of them have been going 10 years. Um, I suppose the old Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours does come in here. Uh, it, it is like getting a university degree, um, and I do have to explain the time frame, particularly in the New Zealand market to comedians, is that when you start as a rookie, you'll probably be a rookie for a year, sometimes two. Uh, then you'll move up. Um, you could be next level for another year or two. Uh, there are, you're going to take maybe eight years to become a really you know, reasonably uh, competent pro-comedian, and people go, eight years? Oh, my God, that's like I could become a doctor in eight years. And they go, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, isn't that a weird that, you know, a doctor, life and death situations, eight years of training, stand-up comedian, eight years of training. <laughs> it's, a- it's important that they're patient. Um, it's important, I also say, that you've got to have fun. Don't come in here with expectations that you're going to be paying the rent after, after five gigs. Um, it's not going to happen. And so we've just marked... 20 years, what's, what's next? Well, um, what we're going to do is uh, we, we're going to try and find a way of expanding our, um, uh, not, not the, our club, but expanding the base of comedy around New Zealand. Um, and a lot of people are involved in that. Uh, I suppose you look at the classic now as a cornerstone of an industry, and it remains a cornerstone in which we'll build. The festival, comedy festival, is another cornerstone. Uh, so we are hoping to build a stable platform right around the country of um, acceptable gigs, good venues, so that touring becomes something that people can do more easily. Um, and that's important because going on the road, you learn truckloads. And being able to put young comedians on the road, uh, and that's where they'll learn everything they need to learn. They'll get more gigs, more stage time. It also means that the country gets more comedy, 
quite frankly, it is very, very Auckland-based uh, with a good chunk of stuff happening in Wellington, but not, not quite the same as what we have here. And then it starts to lighten up Christchurch and Dunedin have little scenes, and I don't think they should. You know, I don't see any reason that more comedians can't be on the road around New Zealand all the time. That's so cool. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much, Scott Banks of the Classic Comedy Club for coming in to talk about the 20 years and what's next. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very much to Madeline Chapman for producing and thank you very much for listening. If you are a fan of the spin-off podcasts, do check them out now on Spotify where you can find them all. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.